This is Dollars and Sensibility with Tom Stone. And we're gonna talk about what you really want. And at the end of the day, how to get what you really want is to understand money. Guild Mortgage, NMLS number 3274, Tom Stone, NMLS number 257849. The information contained in these podcasts are for educational purposes only and do not necessarily express the opinions of Guild Mortgage. So welcome to another podcast of Dollars and Sensibility. And I personally chose this one with a slight bit of nepotism. I invited my son, Bree, you too, by the way. <laughs> Glad you're here again. Thank you. Bree and I had our first podcast last week and I was like, dang, that kind of worked out. I kind of like that tandem thing. And, you know, Bree's got a witty personality and why not have you tag along? Thank you. I appreciate tag along. <laughs> no, I appreciate her style. And she's like, and when I said, hey, Tate, my son's going to come in. She's like, I want to join that one for sure. I've got questions you're not going to ask. Absolutely. So just to set this one up. Uh, Tate just quit his job last week to start his own business. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the fear you had of that step and even the step of buying your first house. So in other words, you're 26 years old, right, Tate? Yeah. So he's 26. And I just want to set kind of some stages for people and, and you know, buying your first home, some education, setting yourself up for a business. You know, what have you done? So that someone maybe in that position could think about it. And then, you know, what's important to you? Why did you make these choices? I'll also set this up. I think one of the disservices we do to the children in our lives is we ask the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. And I believe that is one of the worst questions we can ask. I think the question is, what lifestyle do you want to have when you grow up? Someone could say, I want to grow up because I I'm be a veterinarian because I love animals. Awesome. That is so wonderful. Very rewarding. You realize that if you're a true veterinarian, you could be making house calls. You might be uh, dealing with situations on the weekends and it might be you're a doctor and, and you have house calls and these pets are just as important as anything else. And you're dealing with life and death situations and sadness. I'm not, I know you love animals. Is that the lifestyle you want? And then you also have to be a businessman and know how to invoice and collect money and all these variables. And so, especially in a high school setting or in a situation of children all the way up to college, if we're asking the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, a, and they take personality tests. Yeah, you should be able to like what you do for sure. But in the industry I'm in, mortgages, and I ask people every time what they do for a living, and even the conversation goes to you know their job and if they like it, it almost inevitably, and you can help me out with this, Bree, how do you like your job? And if they say they love it, what they say is, I love the people I work with and I feel <clears throat> that I get rewarded and I have some sort of a value. Even if it's some sort of, I work at the county and maybe it's not as, you know, a, a sexier thing to say, or I work in software, you yeah, know, no offense, county employees, <laughs> <laughs> no offense, county, city, uh, attorney. I don't care what it is. Uh, you know, Tate's like, I'm in software and people go, Oh, what's that? <laughs> Anyway, what are your thoughts on that question, Bree? Yeah, I think it I think it can be a really broad question because, you know, you want to be doing something that you love. Um, 
and you want to be doing something. A lot of people want to do something where they feel like it can be meaningful or things like that. But you always have that counterbalance where you want to also be able to provide the lifestyle that you want for your family, for your kids, or, you know, if it's just you, then for yourself, if you want to be traveling, if you want to, um, you know, be able to invest, whatever that might be. So I think it, I do think that it has, it's multifaceted. So yes, when you're looking at, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Is that going to provide what you want to Mm -hmm. do? Also, I think it's an unfair question for someone who's at that age and we haven't even had that exposure yet. We've been exposed to what our parents do for a living, maybe our friends, dads, and moms and maybe our religious leader, you know, the people in our circle. And I guess I'll do what they do, which is not a bad thing. I'm just saying, I love to expose other ideas and thoughts or the opposite. And they go, I know that I don't want to do that. Well, exactly. And that's what all of my kids have said. <laughs> I was going to say, Tate, how do you feel about mortgages? <laughs> <laughs> he, he saw me blood, sweat and tears pushing this thing. And he's like, no, thank you. Yeah. Now, by the way, going to Guild has been a whole different story. It has been. Prior 100%. to Guild, it was horrible. <laughs> it was good in a lot of ways, but so hard. Okay, now that's the intro, Tate, my eldest son. I did want you on the show. I do want to have this conversation. And maybe we start with, Tate, what did you want to be when you grew up? Let's start uh, there. Great question. I don't know. Let's see. You know, at some point, I think I thought about a pilot. And then at some point, I thought about, and that wasn't going to work because I've got, I get, you know, like a stuffy nose and it hurts when I go. On. So that wasn't going to work. And then. Stuffy nose. I know they get, get you. It's gonna get it you. Destroys your life dreams. And then, uh, you know, I thought about president. Decided to pass. Yeah, you were very uh, serious about being president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. It's much more fun to be sort of the puppet behind the president. Mm-hmm. So you know, and that's maybe more of a retirement type thing I'd love to do. But, but for now, because he does love politics, we might yeah. go there for a I second. Do. I know that he, he loves politics. politics. I have some questions for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So I mean, that's a good point. Is what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, what opportunities do you have? Maybe is a better, better mm-hmm. question. And what mm-hmm. does the market need from you? Right. There you may you be well positioned um, to execute on something that, you know, maybe other people around you can't, it's sort of a bummer if you pass up a great opportunity because you're, you know, quote unquote, pursuing your dreams mm-hmm. and that's fine and dandy. But like they say, the key to happiness in life is low expectations. <laughs> and I mean, that's sort of true, but no, there is something to it where it's like, explain that. I think there's something to be said about like, if you're just constantly worried about, Oh, do I love this? Or do I love that? You're not going to love anything. Yeah. Um, Someone said, always, if you're always, if you're constantly uh, checking yourself for your temperature, you're never going to feel well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I get it. Yeah. You don't want to have, you know, some ditch digging job or something, mm-hmm. but um, you know, for the most part, you know, if you look at the opportunities around you and, and look at what you're good at, yeah, so whatever. You're not in love with your job. Well, go on a vacation or something, right? You're yeah. going to be okay, right? You're <laughs> going to have other interests. You're going to have hobbies. And that's the one thing is sometimes you see people trying to get their you know purpose in life out of their job. Well, you know, maybe some of that, but you should have a wide enough uh, array of things in your life that you get meaning and, and things besides just out of your job. So you can set yourself up for, uh, you know, being able to take advantage of the opportunities that come your way. So let me just set this stage now for the next question. So Tate is, is his title is he is the revenue operations manager. Now he has his own company of revenue operations and a RevOps is what he does. And it's like, oh yeah, what is that? 
you know, and so here's one of those jobs you have to sit and explain. I always tell people having done mortgages for over 30 years, having seen everybody's jobs, how they run, the income they make, how many years they've been there, those kind of things. I've always said, I've learned that the more someone has to explain to you their job, the more money they make. <laughs> that's almost always the case, you know, when, you know, and that's not always true, but many, many times. So, so what do you do? Well, you know, the little brackets and windows that you don't see, I guess I do. I've never seen them. He's like, eh, I sell those and highly successful at it. You know, I, I learned my like, interesting. So Tate, when you grew up, you probably did not say I wanted to be a revenue operations guy. Yeah, it's uh, in fact, it probably wasn't even yeah. yeah, it didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll take a little bit of a step back before I explain exactly what that is. But right. So I work like someone said, I work in tech, right? That's sort of a very broad statement, right? You know, Apple is a tech company. Mm -hmm. Amazon is a tech company. Facebook mm -hmm. is a tech company. But they all do very, very different things. Sort of the spot I found within tech is what you would call SaaS, which is software as a service. Mm -hmm. And so inside of that little niche, it means you are selling a software. And I focus more on the B2B side, but you're selling a software. B2B means what? Business to business. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you're selling a software mostly to other businesses um, that has like a reoccurring type of subscription associated with it, right? So if you're a small business and you're getting started and you go ahead and you buy QuickBooks, for example, mm -hmm. QuickBooks Online, you're going to be paying, you know, 40 bucks a month or whatever it is. And they're going to run, it's going to do all your accounting software, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a really good example of software as a service. Facebook is not. Facebook is like a digital advertising platform, mm -hmm. right? Apple, they're making hardware and software, not at all the same thing. Mm -hmm. So in that specific niche of software as a service, um, everybody thinks they're so unique and cool. But at the end of the day, most of these companies have a very, very similar sales, marketing, and then like retention uh, setup and strategy. Um, you know, you'll if you ever get on LinkedIn and you see somebody sending you a message that you've never heard of them before, hey, can I give you a quick demo of this or whatever, right? Um, that's going to be, you know, one aspect of this, you know, the marketing, they're going to target you with specific ads. And then if you do sign up and you say, Hey, I want to cancel, somebody's going to reach out to you and try and keep you on. Right. So there's these similar models across these SaaS software as a service companies. Um, and there's a lot of tools that go into it. Right. So mm -hmm. each company is going to have what you would call a tech stack. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I mean, go ahead and skip this part, I guess, podcast, <laughs> maybe two or three minutes. And I want to get too into it, but and basically what it is, is you're going to have a set of tools and a set of people that are trying to grow your revenue. Um, and those set of tools and those set of people are not going to be perfect at it. And so what it really does to help is to have somebody that can sort of sit a little bit off to the side, a little bit above it all, and try and tie it all together. Um, making sure that, okay, we bought QuickBooks, but we also bought Salesforce. Well, I'd love those two to be integrated. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, no, your salespeople know how to do that. That's what I, you know, I can set that up. Well, I'd love it when we, you know, our, our salesperson makes a call. I'd love for that call to show up uh, as a record that I can go look and check how many they did or something like that, right? I'd love a report that was sent to mm -hmm. me each week to know how many calls are being made, right? So those are the types of things that I do. There's And, and at the end of the day, the whole point of it is to unify your revenue team, marketing, sales, what you would call CS, customer support. Um, if you can get all three of those working together, um, there's a lot of 
I mean, I'm trying not to get too jargony, but there's a lot of like velocity that you can get behind that. It means your revenue, you can close more deals at a bigger size and faster, right? So like at the beginning, there's speed to lead. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So if you fill out a form on a website, how long does it take somebody to email you? Because usually you our attention spans are pretty short. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this product right now. If someone gets in, you know, within a second, I'm probably interested. If you wait till next week, I'm probably not interested anymore. And, and it's so boring that I, I'm like, I apologize, but like, there's so much that goes into that because what if somebody in Canada fills out your form, but they can't actually purchase your software or they need to go to a different team, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have that one form, be able to send that person to the right team or the right group or the right person, right? Otherwise so, you lose the sale. Yep. And you have to do it quick, mm -hmm. right? And so there's just so much that goes on behind the scenes, right? Um, this concept sort of originated in that SaaS sort of area, but it's sort of a little bit universal and it's starting to spread to other places. Like even you're saying uh, Lay's, I saw they're trying to set up potato a, chips, uh -huh, a revenue operation because they have a sales team, they have a marketing team. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's a very different thing where you're not, you know, you're not filling out a form to Someone buy wouldn't have consider Lay's a SaaS company. By and way. they're not, and they're not, right? But that concept of revenue operations applies. And so it's actually starting to catch on even in other industries that mm -hmm. aren't software, that aren't tech, that aren't subscriptions, right? Mm -hmm. And basically the idea is, you know, you have your marketing team over here, who knows what they're doing, your sales team over here, who knows what they're doing, and the softwares they're using are different and they're not tied together and the reporting's different. Um, you know, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll cap this section is there's a great story back in 2008, Ford was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, they had, uh, you know, the CEO basically sort of left, you know, in disgrace. They brought in this new guy, I can't remember his name, you can look him up. Um, and, you know, he'd, he'd have these meetings where it's, you know, the service division would come and the manufacturing division would come and, you know, the warranty, you know, whoever, all these different departments would come and they would show them their dashboards and all their dashboards were. And what's a dashboard? Make sure people let's just say the things that you're trying to measure, right? So the marketing team would come and say, hey, we ran these commercials and, you know, the way we're measuring it, it all looks good, right? The salespeople would show their numbers and it's like, well, you know, the sales are, I guess, good, right? And everybody's numbers looked good, but the company was dying. So mm -hmm. it's like, hmm, this isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can call this revenue operations, you can call it whatever. But, you know, the one thing he did right then and there was basically set aside a revenue operations team or a separate team to build the, the dashboards and then make sure that what they were using to report was all connected rather than, oh, it turns out sales was just cherry picking the numbers. They forgot to include you mm -hmm. know, the states where it was doing bad. They only showed the good stuff, right? Um, and that also goes into building a good culture within a company where it's okay to show the truth, where mm -hmm. it's, well, things are down. Because okay. yeah, one, is, one side might be saying, I'll make sure I look good in front of everybody. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's but, not actual information. Sure. And it worked really well, actually, you know, and they did get some help, but Ford pulled it off. And if you look at today at the, at the auto companies, you know, you've got Tesla who's, you know, cutting edge and everything. But at the end of the day, the company with the best fundamentals, in my opinion, when you look at it, you know, even just from like an investing standpoint, Ford is like leaps and bounds ahead. Well, of they also have these cars that have come out lately that people are just you know, mm -hmm. excited about. Right. Yeah, it, you build a culture around. It. So I guess the point is with revenue operations is you're building a team that can connect your revenue generating teams, softwares, tools, etc. Mm -hmm. So Brie, did you learn something? I did. This is fantastic. What'd you learn? So really you're you're just going in your company and what your service is is just going in and really streamlining integration to the whole company. So everybody is is equally integrated so you can get the better picture and just streamlining that whole process. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the way I would measure my success is I can say at the end of the day, your, your sales cycle, right? Let's think about in mortgages, right? Somebody walks in the door and says, I want to buy a house. Well, how many days does it take till they actually buy the house? Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. right. I don't know, two months or something. Mm -hmm. Right. So what can we do during that two months to speed it up? Can we send follow-up emails? Okay, well, what if we created tasks to remind you to send the follow-up emails? Mm -hmm. What if we send the follow-up emails automatically, right? Mm -hmm. There's things that we can do. It's, oh, well, what if we automated a gift, right? That's actually something we've been working on recently at a company of mine is, or a client of mine is, uh, an automated gift gets sent if they don't reply, if they're in a certain point in the sales process, but they don't reply to us for over a week, you know, it sends them some cheesy gift. Hey, thinking of you, haven't heard of you, but you know, sort of things like that, right? <laughs> so sincere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sincere. Yeah, you know. But it, it does come across sincere, yeah. for sure. And so you can measure that and you can say, hey, we spent a thousand bucks on these gifts or whatever, but it got four of our deals to close, you know, below our average. It's, you know, shortened the sales cycle by a week, meant we got to have more in the pipeline. You can translate that like, oh, that added quite a bit of, of right. revenue. Right. So let's talk what he what you're talking about is metrics. And if I can, I want to introduce the story. So Tate went to work at a startup. He he knew the founder and was a friend. And he's like, sure, you can have a part time job where you go into college. And you started this startup of a metrics company. So, and you know, the company is grow. It's, it was now sold and bought out. It's not existing anymore. But so what does a metrics company do? And you've already explained it, but just kind of be more succinct. So when they say everything you've been talking about is metrics and, and what are metrics? Yeah. So, you know, it's human nature to say, let's say you're in a business, let's say a small business. What's, um, what's small? Two people, 200? Let, let's say you, you're, let's just take an example. You're an ice cream shop or something okay. like that, right? And you're on the corner. And you can say, well, you know, intuitively, I know that on hot days, I sell more ice cream. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, okay, great. So if it's a hot day, what do I do? I guess I go buy some extra or I put my sign out or whatever, right, to try and get some more business. Uh, this company I worked at right out of college, right, was the idea behind it was like, well, let's let's quantify that, right? Let's look at what that is. We can find the, the, the daily average temperature that day. We can map it to your sales. We can map it to all sorts of, you know, things your transaction data, whatever. And we can say, wow, it's like if the forecast for the weather for the next week is going to be 85 plus, then you need to buy extra supplies. And mm -hmm. not only that, that's when you run your Facebook ads, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of spending, an impulse buy. yeah. So instead of spending 50 bucks a day on ads, how about this? When it's Sunday and it's, you know, high of 50 degrees, let's not run them. Mm -hmm. But when it's Friday night and it's a high of 80, blast them. So mm -hmm. don't spend anything on the bad days, spend it all on the good days. And you, you know, you're going to get a net gain out of that. And that's increasing your revenue. So that's, that's even spending the, the same amount of money is what you're mm -hmm. saying. And so the idea is it's like intuitively I can say, oh, I know, you know, hot weather is going to increase sales. Great. With the metrics, you can start to say, okay, let's form a real strategy behind it. Right. And you, and you can build the software to do all this for you. Yeah. Now the funny part is a lot of those things that we intuitively know tend to be wrong, right? It's like, well, oh, that, that's important to talk about. Let's like, oh, we just, you know, we, our sales are always good at the end of the year or something. Like mm -hmm. that. And it's like, well, maybe they're only like 2% better than the rest of the year, but not a meaningful difference for you to reallocate resources. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you know, oh, nobody's allowed to take time off at the end of the year. You know, well, actually you know, it's probably gonna be fine. Right. Or you can fight. Why is it that 
our sales are so much higher during this peak or this whatever. And then you can sort of optimize around that. Mm -hmm. So it's targeting off of the metrics. And I think that one of the things that you said that's really important because we've gone through this too, yeah. where we look at our metrics yeah. is what we, sometimes the feelings that you have attached to things are what you're basing your decisions off of. And that doesn't always translate to the actual numbers. Like we'll, mm -hmm. I mean, we've gone over this sometimes where we're like, oh no, we were slammed this time of year. And quarter one, we were totally slammed. And then we look at the numbers and we're like, oh, you know, <laughs> or, <laughs> those or, metrics don't actually. Or don't we actually... were slammed, but it was with less income producing type Correct. of transactions. Correct. So it was. So more we were busy, pre, it was but our profitability. Yep. It was pre-qualifying. And then really the, where we were filling that busyness in quarter one, it actually translated to quarter two. So yep. quarter two is actually where we got that profitability from the quarter one. Yep. So I, yeah, the metrics are so important and not in seeing where the numbers actually relate to it versus what you feel like is, is sometimes totally different. Yeah. And you know, that's like, sounds so amazing when you talk about, Oh, well, let's just do that. Then let's just follow <laughs> the metrics. Right? right. But the problem is it's so much work to like first get any numbers at all, but then make sure those numbers are, right right mm -hmm. um and a lot of that has to do with the software you are using right it's like oh we ran this report and we forgot to include the last three weeks or something like that right and so um that's sort of where i can step in and say okay you know most software companies are either using hubspot or salesforce which you may or may not have heard of doesn't really matter but most use that uh -huh. most of their companies i mean those two if you if you're in business at all you've heard of those mm -hmm. and so those i've got uh you know, sort of specialties in those. And I've gone through and done some of the certifications behind it. And so if you're using those two tools, right, that's where I can jump in and say, great, there's a lot of stuff out of the box I can do to not only get your data cleaned up and then formatted correctly and then looking good, but then you can start to do the more fun part, which is, okay, this is interesting. And then you build a strategy behind it. So there's, there's a, this is a story that's probably way in your past, but it was enough. It was a, for me, it was like a interesting so Tate was in marketing and then you were in operations, even collecting bad debts and you would sit in on the meetings and you told me a story once where their top salesperson in the company, just all these crazy sales and how he was getting all of the income and the bonuses and no one was noticing that actually the information was going to a, another salesperson that may not have had the top sales, but better retention. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just the short version of that is exactly that, where we had a sales rep who could close any deal. Um, but when you track those deals over time, you start to say, well, these people stop paying their bills or all of a sudden, you know, 25% of his deals, a credit card stops working or they request to cancel a lot earlier than, you know, what we consider normal. So he had all these great sales. But if you, if you factored that in and then you start to say, well, who after a year, let's say, has the highest revenue mm -hmm. that's still on the books or that still you know, didn't cost us a ton to retain? It was somebody who looked like they were sort of in the middle of the pack, but their deals were just solid every time, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so those are the other things. You know, and there's another funny story where we had the sales team that they had you know, the assignment, they had to make 100 calls a day or something like that. And you could track how many calls they made and then how many you know, meetings they booked from those calls, which led to how many deals. And it was pretty, you know, average uh, over a period. And then all of a sudden those numbers started to drop. Like they were still making a hundred calls a day. But when you looked at the numbers, 
the number of deals being closed from that number of demos set from that dropped like crazy. So you start looking at what the heck is up? Mm -hmm. You dig, you dig, you dig. Well, it turns out they sort of figured out that if you call the West coast first thing in the morning, they are not awake. And then if you call the East coast last thing at the end of the day, they've already gone home. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're making all these, I did my hundred calls sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. But they figured out a way it's like they could just churn through them a lot faster and make sure nobody answered so they could check the box and then mm -hmm. move on. Right. So those are the sorts of things that are important to look at, analyze. Um, and then you find value out of that. Right. So if you're a company and you get you figured out that's happening, you make the adjustment. How much money did that save you from continuing to waste time and money on that? So, yes, you have a company that analyzes numbers, but you're actually analyzing human behavior. Yeah. Both yeah. on the sell side and the operation side. Yeah. And that's, that's a tricky part for me, at least is like, um, you know, for me, I can, I can build some cool process or system, you know, for example, uh, anytime one of our reps at a client of mine, they have a, a demo that happens where they're demoing the product. They then are supposed to go into the software and log that demo, put some notes in there, say, Hey, this meeting actually happened. This is for real. Um, and you know, you say, okay, great guys. Like we're going to be able to track all our meetings now. Well, guess what? They don't do it. Right. They don't fill it out. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the tricky part is it's like, okay, well now I can build in some automated reminders where it's like first thing in the morning, it sends them a report. Hey, here are the meetings from yesterday. You didn't log. Can you go ahead and do that? And then you can get even more tricky and, and you know, Hey, like it's not going to let you schedule another meeting until you log your old ones or something like that. Right. Um, and so that's the tricky part is you have to learn how to build good relationships with people, mm -hmm. not just build the most scientific or, you know, a hundred percent data driven where everybody hates you. Right. Um, yep. Yep. Where, so it, it, it's, it's a balance and it's a mix, but it's good. And it's quality, quality over quantity with all of these things. You can, you can check the boxes, but making sure that you're doing it in that meaningful way is the part that sometimes gets hard to translate. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I want to have a, a conversation about the fact that you know when, I, when you look at Tate's resume, you graduated with a degree in economics. And the mean in the meantime, while you were going to school, you worked at a part time job at a startup. Do you recommend going and getting a university degree? Now, by the way, you ask this question to a fifty year old or a seventy five year old a 35 year old and you're 26. So I'm just curious, do you recommend someone who is an 18 year old, your youngest brother, he's gonna be graduating high school here. Do you recommend generally, maybe not specifically, but generally is I'm glad I got my university degree and I would recommend it or are there other ways to do it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Obviously there's not a one size fits all. Um, the way I sort of look at it is where do you have the most opportunity, right? If you're, if you're standing on the path and you look out at all the different options you have before you, um, and you say, well, college isn't in the cards for me. Okay. I think you better have a pretty darn good path then, right? That has opportunity. That can't right? be your path. Yeah. If that's not it. Then what is it? Exactly. So if you're not going to go to college, great. Like there's plenty of successful people who didn't go to college, but do you have a startup in your basement or mm -hmm. do you maybe have a, a trade that you've gotten really good at? If that's the case, then yeah, you don't need it. Go for it. Right. Mm -hmm. College is not for everybody, but I think it is important that it's not used as an excuse to say, Oh, well, it's not for me or whatever. Right. Um, at the end of the day, the whole point is teach people to pursue opportunity and to recognize it and take it. 
Um, and college does provide a lot of opportunity. It probably doesn't teach you a ton in terms of hard skills that you're going to use for the rest of your life, but it opens doors and you meet people that you're going to, I mean, for me, the, like when I look back, what did I learn in college? There's not a ton that I even remember now, <laughs> there, but there are a couple life lessons that were, that were instrumental, but more than anything, it just set me on the right path towards, Oh, okay. I'm going to get into this. I will say at the same time, I know plenty of successful people who didn't take the college path. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, the other thing is you just have to be a lifelong learner, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you do go to college, but then you never read a book the day after you graduate, well, it's not pretty good either. Right. Yep. Um, so that's what I say is if you're always looking for opportunities and you're trying to learn, you're going to be, you're going to be good no matter what your path is. Now you went to a school right after the university and learned how to write code. Yeah, I did a coding boot camp. And why and how did you, do you recommend that? So I guess the one thing I learned in college that I remember is I had a professor who always said, the riches are in the niches. Yep. Right. So if you're trying to do what everybody else is trying to do, you may be able to make a living, but it's going to be pretty competitive and tough. So what can you do to differentiate yourself? So for me, I, I did not want to become like a software engineer the coder in the basement with Cheetos and some people do you know, whatever. Right. And that's no fine. offense to the Cheeto. Guy. Yeah. No offense. That's fine. But you didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that wasn't for me, but what I realized was being the most technical guy in the room is often a huge advantage, right? Mm. So you can have, you know, the person who knows how to do strategy better than anybody else. They've got the best ideas, the best vision. Great. Fantastic. But if they don't know the details of how it actually works, then they're going to turn or they're going to need to turn to somebody like me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you can find sort of a unique balance of that, I, I think it's really good. And you, and you saw that in the founder of Grow. He had to bring on somebody as an owner originally who had the technical skills because mm -hmm. he didn't. And you see that pretty often where, especially in software, you'll have sort of the visionary idea and they'll bring on a founder. That's what you would call like a technical co-founder mm -hmm. who can execute on writing the code and, and hiring the software team and making sure it's set up correctly. Mm -hmm. And you said, eh, I don't know how to do that. So I don't have to hire somebody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it also just sets me up to say, okay. Yeah. And here's the stuff. What I know how to do isn't terribly difficult. Mm -hmm. It's kind of difficult to learn, but uh, it, it, it builds a little bit of a moat around me. Right. Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I can't get rid of him because nobody else knows how to do it. Right? <laughs> so, and, and, you know, you mean personally for a job security? Yeah. Yeah. And that's from like the job security perspective, but also as we're trying to, you know, build out our client base right now, um, if the company can outsource some of that technical knowledge mm -hmm. to me, it's going to be a little bit cheaper for them because they don't have to go try and hire somebody with the exact skills they need for their specific tech stack or set of software tools they use. Um, they can hire someone who's already an expert in their tools. They don't have to worry about it. They don't need to know the details behind it. They just know that it works. They can then send over to me. Here's our strategy. Here's our vision. Here's what we want to accomplish. I can say a couple of days later, great, it's working. Here you go. And it's fantastic. It's this perfect marriage. Um, now, you know, sometimes it does make sense to try and round out your resume and learn some of these technical skills. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like what percentage of people are actually going to learn how to code? Right. Right. You know, uh, you know, maybe you can play those like fifth grade coding games or mm -hmm. whatever, right? But Oregon um, Trail, right? You like Oregon Trail. I do. Come on, everybody likes Oregon Trail. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's that's sort of the idea, right? Is riches in the niches. You find a skill set that's hard to replicate, mm -hmm. um, but also make sure you're rounded out with some of the soft skills and you should be pretty good. Yeah. So one of the things that you're talking about, one of the platforms that you've talked about is Salesforce. 
So we use that here. And I think that it's so important to, to kind of expand on, which I think you've already done, how important it is that you can have the software and it doesn't mean anything if you don't know how to use it. So Salesforce has, it's so, it can cover so many different things and it's so dynamic and it can, it can implement so many different ways to look at um, the metrics. But if you don't know how to use it, which I mean, to be honest, Tom, you and I, we're not going to know how to use that right off the and bat. And I don't want to. No. <laughs> right. So <laughs> I mean, I want to, know how to read it. Right. But I don't really want how to build it. You and I want to be doing mortgages. Yep. We want to be talking to our clients. Yep. We want to be going out and building relationships. Time is money, man. Exactly. And I need to be doing what I do well. Exactly. Yep. So that's where it is so important because we do have these tools at our disposal. But if we don't have somebody like Tate and teaching us how to use or even setting it up for us so we can just plug it in then or he just not, does it right depending exactly. on the, depending on the situation then we're not getting everything out of it that we possibly can so that's why it's so important i think to have somebody that's that meeting because that isn't our that isn't our profession that isn't what we want to spend our time doing because we want to spend our time elsewhere that's going to be making us more money but that software still is paramount in helping us make that money and helping us stay connected with our clients and things like that. So I think that that's where that, that piece fits in so well with everything, with so many industries. Even though I do mortgages for a living, the amount of time I spend trying to make my software make the numbers say what I'm trying to show right, right. is like, okay, I've, I've got this number in here, but it's not calculating it the way it needs to be calculated because right. it's a different situation. Exactly. People say, oh, it's an application. Numbers are not just numbers, man. Mm -mm. This this whole human behavior element right. is gigantic. Even when you have these, you know, what's your debt ratio and what's your credit score stuff, there's some, we always tell a story too. Mm -hmm. We have to tell the story about that person, why they would qualify for a mortgage or not. Exactly. Hey, they're short on their two-year history or their, their income is tips because they work at a restaurant and they have this and that. How do I want to show the income? The computer says to a certain point limitations and how do I help it? So I can show the underwriter the real story. Exactly. Yeah. Well, even looking at the pull through metrics, you know, we can, you know, where you were talking about hundred calls a day, you know, we, we spend a lot of time going through those metrics and saying, okay, we need to call and talk to this many people. We need to get this many people. But Salesforce tells us, by the way, it that's does. what's cool about it. It tells it us is. who to call and when. Well, and the tasks and everything that you've talked about, we use mm -hmm. that. Um, but just looking at the metrics and what our actual pull through is, you know, application to close and, you know, figuring out how to, how to make that work better. So we can get more closings and we can get more people, you know, to the application phase and, you know, what that means. If we have this many applications, how many closings we can actually expect. Yep. Um, that's such an important part of our business. Yeah. And the other piece behind all that is, is automation and the role that that plays. Right. And that's big in software. It's big in a lot of businesses. My view is you should try and automate as much of you, as much as you can of your business. Um, you know, and that actually sounds a little bit scary to some people, right? Oh, my job is maybe five, 10 years away from getting automated or software is going to take it over. I'm a taxi driver and the self-driving car is going to come or whatever. Yep. Right. Yep. And that's fine. Um, but sort of the way I look at it, look at it is, you need to find a human skill that you're really good at. Think about selling. Think about marketing. Think about design. Think about negotiation. Uh-huh. These are things that are not ever going to be automated. Mm -hmm. So my advice to somebody who's starting out, find a skill like that that's going to be tough to get automated. Get really good at it. The human side of that, the mm -hmm. soft skill side of it. And then as these tools get stronger, better, faster, whatever, 
they're going to automate as much of the non-human part that you don't want to do anyway as mm -hmm. possible. It's not really something to fear. It's going to augment what you can do, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the self-driving car example, right? You're the taxi driver. They've been talking about it forever. I don't know, whenever that's coming. But more than anything, you know, right now my car, I'm like, I don't even know how to drive anymore. It does like 90% of it, right? And you, um, want a, and you want a Tesla. Yeah, yeah. And it's good because it's like, honestly, it's safer, right? Mm -hmm. Now to say it's 100% on its own versus whatever, uh, I think about it, you can, you can do these things together in tandem and it can augment what you're doing, mm -hmm. right? If you have tools that can make it seem like you're in multiple places at once that can do a lot of outreach on your behalf, think about it. Like, I just think, how did, how did the economy even work like 20 years ago? Like yeah. a salesperson, they would actually like write an email to each person or something, yep. Yep. a handwritten letter or a pigeon or whatever, right? Like <laughs> versus now I can send, you know, hundreds of emails on behalf of somebody they don't even know I'm sending them, right? And then they just show up the next day with the 10 responses and it's like, okay, I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. Versus think that would have taken weeks or something before, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that just shows you like, you know, I, I think the future is bright when you look at the economy. Yeah, we may be heading into a rough patch right now, but the innovation and the technology that we see coming down the pipe, if you've got a human skill that you're good at, that you work at, that you're trying to learn, you're gonna be just fine. And the future's bright. Like there's a lot of opportunity that's gonna get created, even if some of it goes away. Adaptability is a huge portion of that too, is being able to to adapt as the new tech is coming out, as new challenges are coming out, as pivot. everything. Yeah, you've got to pivot. So, so Tate, you, you did a university degree. You went and got uh, uh, coding training. You also did some certifications in Salesforce particularly, right? You got a really good job out of college and even got a better job. And then you decided to quit. Yeah. Just two weeks ago. Well, I just waited for the recession. It was a good time. As soon as the recession <laughs> came, I'm going to quit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When things are good, no, no, no. Wait, wait for the recession. Yes. Once it starts to look dicey, then it's time. Yeah. <laughs> give, us, give us the why. You know, it's always been something I wanted to do. It's not for everybody. You know. In fact, you were hoping to get a partner and he decided not to. Yeah. And that's fine. It's not for everybody and not everybody needs to be an entrepreneur. Um, but for me, it just made a lot of sense where I could do this at one company and learn a ton. And then it would be way easy for me to just do it again at another one and another one and another one at the same time, at the same time. Right. And I get faster at it and I get better at it. And it's like, oh man. And some of the stuff that I'm doing is kind of manual and boring. Maybe I could hire somebody to do that part, yep. right? And I've, I've got the strategy behind it. I know how to execute on it, mm -hmm. but I don't want to actually have to write the lines of code, which I am still doing right now, right? Um, and so I think that for me, it was like, ah, oh, there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, and, you know, you can tell yourself whatever you need to make yourself sleep at night. But recessions, you know, may actually be a good time to start a business, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, it's really tough to say, but like, recessions are actually kind of good for the economy, right? They are, they like are. A cleansing. It is. And it's not just, uh, I mean, it's sad that people lose their jobs, but it also says, well, which businesses shouldn't really be in business anymore, mm -hmm. right? If we have an economy that's supporting all these businesses that shouldn't be around and maybe they're sticking around because they had so much COVID money or something like that, mm -hmm. that's actually a net drag on the economy, right? We're all going to pay for that one way or another. Um, so a recession, yeah, it's not good, and if you were looking at a graph, right, you might imagine it to go up and then down as a recession hits. And it would be sort of a cyclical thing, right? If you'd looked at that over 30 years, you'd see it go up, you see it go down, mm -hmm. you see it go up. But it wouldn't be 
you know, if you were to draw a line of best fit between sort of the tops and the bottoms uh, of the economy, it's not a flat line. It's going up still, right? Mm -hmm. So the bottom of this recession, it's not going to be as bad as the bottom of the 2008 recession, mm -hmm. right? right? And, you know, if you look at the size of the 2008 economy, it still was like 10 times bigger than the 1950 economy, mm -hmm. right? So like, yes, it was bad. And a lot of people you know, coming down, that's painful, right? But we're lucky to live in, in this country where we've got such a strong economy. We're a leader in so many industries. We've got such a diverse, and this state especially, right? Yeah. In Utah. Uh, and so it's really easy to get bogged down by the bad news. But long term, I think we've got a lot of good ahead of us. And especially like if you're thinking about buying a house, right? Yeah. Um, oh, it's a bummer. I don't know. My two cents, which don't listen to this, right? Put the disclaimer that I don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> you know what? Like interest asterisk, rates. Asterisk. Yeah, yeah. Interest rates, well, they're way up. But historically, they're actually still down, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's like, you know, look at the 80s or something, right? Where it's like interest rates, I don't know, it's four, I don't know, whatever. 40%. I don't know, I'm just making up a number, right? But like we're whatever. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. Higher. Like, whatever, right? Six or it's a deal. That's it a is. deal. It is. Can't afford not to, right? Um, and so it, it, you have to adjust that mindset's painful, right? You have to yep. make a couple cuts here and there. Um, and this probably will not be the best, you know, 18 to 24 months, whatever it is, but guess what? If house prices have come down, which it seems like they have even a little bit and you bought a house and you pair, you're at 6%, 7% interest, ouch. Okay. But do you think that the interest rate is going to be that high forever? Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any chance it goes down in the future? Well, maybe you had to have a 7% interest rate for 12 months and then it came down and then you can refinance and you got the house at a lower price, right? Okay. Yep. So that's one of the things where it's like, you know, if you play sort of the long game, I'm, I, I think we're in a good spot. We don't live in some crappy country that's, you know, barely trying to survive. We're a leader in almost every mm -hmm. um, aspect of the global economy. And so there's a lot to look forward to. Yes, things will change. Some jobs may go away, but new ones will get created, right? Um, recessions are painful, but it may actually be a good time to sort of reset. So I'm going to ask for a final statement, and that is you like politics. That's interesting to a lot of people. Why? Uh, I don't and you're, know. And you're 26. You've, you've liked it since you were 12. Yeah, yeah. You had your own radio show, by the way, when you were a sophomore in high school and talked about politics. Yeah, yeah. And then you want to be the president of the United States. You really did until you yeah. saw the, the mire that, you know, the negativity and you're like, I don't need that crap in my life. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the way I look at it is I'm always so excited uh, at the latest, you know, innovation when things change. And, you know, I always love to look at, you know, look at look what Steve Jobs did to change the mm -hmm. world. Right. I love to look at the innovators and the people who make serious improvements on the lives of everybody. Right. Um, and love it or hate it, the government can do that. They can cause a lot of good. They can cause a lot of harm. Um, and so you get somebody in there who's real smart, who's genuinely trying to improve things. It can make a big difference, right? What's your comment on the one-sided theory? Oh, that's a great question. I uh, Like, oh, just we got to get those people out. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way politics is portrayed most of the time. It's sort mm -hmm. of this you know, zero-sum game, very tribal. It's my side or your side. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're going to have very, very good reasons why you're going to probably yep. vote for your side every single time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I look at things more from like a capitalist free market standpoint where 
I think politics should be extremely competitive, mm -hmm. right? You know, I, I think these races should be as absolutely close as possible because guess what? If there's competition, like we know in capitalism, like in the free market, you're going to get better outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. If so-and-so knows he may or may not be elected again next time, he's going to do a better job. Mm -hmm. But if his, you know, so for example, in the House of Representatives, they can draw the maps so that their districts are not competitive at all. Mm -hmm. I hate that because mm -hmm. it means that they know they literally have to put in zero effort so they can go off and do whatever they want because they're going to get reelected, right? They can be, you know, child molester. And it's like, well, I'm in my, you know, he's in my side. So I guess I'll vote for him or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's a big bummer. So, you know, we're in a very, very tribal time in history. I'm hoping that, you know, the worst of it's behind us. Maybe it's not. But, you know, anybody that's out there is uh, that that's trying to improve things. And the other part is, you know, someone that compromises just to compromise isn't necessarily the best. You know, there's a saying that says some of the worst ideas are bipartisan. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there is something to that. I just think having healthy competition is really good. So, uh, you know, it, it's very hard for people to say, oh, well, maybe in this race, I'll vote for the other party just to, you know, shake things up. That's really hard for people yeah. to do, right? It's almost like you're going against your religion or whatever. But if we were all a little more open to that, I think we'd be in a lot better spot. I agree with that. Well, here we are at 44 minutes mm -hmm. and we usually go about 30. So I was enthralled. How about you, Brie? Yeah, I think that was a great conversation. I love, again, he's, he's my son. I have these kind of conversations all the time with him, with my family. And I love it. I love hearing, and I probably know a whole lot more about politics and business because of the younger generation. Right. Because of Tate and and his friends and, and where he's been working and so forth and so on. Again, maybe we have Tate back because we didn't even talk about the fact that, you know, the, the whole math behind why I'm doing you, you talked about why you did your own business because you're going to be an entrepreneur. But there's a lot of variables to, well, does you, do you make more money? How do you make more money? And what is the scale, uh, scaling a business? How can you scale this scale? What, how do you do that? You know, he said, I can, I can work one job, but... I'm going to do it for multiple companies. How do you split yourself up and then you hire more people and then how much that costs? I don't know. There's a whole lot to it. So Bree, any uh, final comments? No, that was great. Thank you for coming in. Yeah. Thanks, Tate. We'll Dude. do it again, huh? Sounds good. This is Dollars and Sensibility and I'm Tom Stone. Thank you for listening and thanks for getting real with me. So next step is to answer your questions. Come see me, Guild Mortgage. 435-654-9979 or goapplastom.com.